Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm James Conlon, welcoming you to join me as we embark on a journey that has tremendous significance for me and for the Los Angeles Opera. This podcast is part of a four-part presentation that accompanies Los Angeles Opera's rebroadcast of Richard Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelungen. Instead of the more conventional podcasts, we feature four recordings of live pre-performance talks as I gave them in 2010. They have all of the virtues and vices of live performance, just as any live opera itself would have. Interruptions, technical issues with musical excerpts, even the occasional mistake. Although there were sporadic performances of Ring operas performed by visiting companies, the 2009-2010 Ring was the first ever produced in Los Angeles. I hope the excitement which we all felt, public and performers alike, will bear up well under the microscope of the microphone and will be an enjoyable adjunct to your journey through this monumental work. Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is a great moment. Tonight's the night, the beginning of the first complete cycle in Los Angeles' history. I personally am living as I've always wanted to. Every night this week, I've conducted a ring up. We've done three dress rehearsals all week, and tomorrow is Valkyrie. We do take Memorial Day off to remember what we've done. And then we start up again to reflect on it and then start up with Goethe Dembrung, two rehearsals. And so it's a great month. I started seeing The Ring when I was a teenager. I hate to tell you how many decades ago that was. I still am finding out new things every day. Uh, you know, Wagner is impossible to boil down to 20 hours at a time. It's impossible to tell you about the 20 hours in 45 minutes, but I do my best. If we're able to convince you tonight that it's worth it, it'll go on for the rest of your life. That's the only thing I can tell you. For some of you who've heard these speeches before, there is a overall scheme like a four-part symphony. That's a, a simile. It, uh, it's just a way of thinking of it. This is the expository piece. You're going to get the whole picture of what's happening here in a cosmic drama that involves all the Nordic gods or Wagner's interpretation of the Nordic gods. You'll recognize some of them through the Greek gods that you know as well. And the next movement is going to be Die Valkyrie. That's going to be all about love. This one is about power. Power and love are two antagonistic poles as they are in life. He will use this myth to show us that uh, he who perceives power will lose love and he who perceives love will lose power. Um, and there's no question that Wagner comes down on the great side of love. Now, then there's a scherzo, a joke, that's Siegfried, and then there's an apocalyptic finish, and that's Goethe Demerung. Today, you don't have to worry about any of that. Um, you should know that the story was written backwards. Wagner started out with Goethe Demerung. He called it the death of Siegfried, Siegfried's Tod. Uh, but there was so much back information that was necessary, he wrote Siegfried. And then he had to explain where Siegfried came from, so he wrote Die Walkür. And that wasn't enough, so he wrote Das Rheingold. Now, there is some information that takes place before Das Rheingold as well, Thank God he didn't write another opera to explain that. But you'll get most of that in the course of the evening. And I will do my best now to quickly give you the picture. Who are the gods? There are three levels of characters. The gods on top, the giants who work and walk the earth, and then there is the race of the Nibelungen. The Nibelungen are dwarfs, and they are under the earth. So the ring of the Nibelungen, it's physically a ring, like your wedding ring, becomes a symbol of power, and it is created by a goldsmith who was under the earth. So you've got these three levels. The head is, of course, Wotan. 
Wotan, he's called Odin in the Nordic myths. You all will recognize his great similarities with Zeus. He's the master god. He has a wife. Her name is Fricka. She's the goddess of home and hearth. She's married to Wotan. She protects marriage, and this is very important. She's well-placed to protect marriage or to try to because Wotan has the same proclivity as Zeus. He continuously goes down to earth and finds mortal women, and he makes babies at leisure and at pleasure. You're going to meet a lot of his relatives, a lot of his children, because the entire ring is peopled with them. Uh, that is one of the reasons that Fricka, as a goddess, uh, knows, what her, knows what the difficulties and the challenges are to being the goddess of home and hearth. Okay? You'll see some of that uh, conflict right away. Now, you will meet, right at the beginning, three Rhine maidens. The Rhine maidens swim in the Rhine. They are creatures of nature. We do not know from where they came. We have, they are not defined. Their job is to swim around the Rhine and to, like the Vestal Virgins, to admire and love the gold. What is the gold? That is Rheingold, is gold that is in the Rhine River. And what does it do there? Nothing. It is nature in its perfect form. It is a representation of that. It glows and makes beautiful light in the river. The Rhine Maiden's job is to adore it and to protect it. Now, on the other side, there's a character named Alberich. Alberich is one of the Nibelungen. He is a dwarf. He is ugly and misshapen. And he wants, like the rest of us, he wants love. And in fairy tales, it's allowed, if someone's ugly and misshapen, they don't deserve love, and you have a right somehow to treat them badly. This is very inhuman, but you go back through all of the fairy tales of Grimm. It's the gnome. It's the, it's the dwarf. He's ugly. He lives in the woods. Well, we're going to see a, an example of that. Alberic, he's going to seek the love of the three Rhine maidens, and they, as one of my colleagues um, pointed out, this is the morality of the schoolyard, 12-year-olds, you're ugly, I don't want to talk to you, okay? The, the girls treat him very poorly, very badly. They are swimming around naked, and of course, he's desiring them, and he tries one after the other, and they all make fun of him. Then they say, here's the gold. Look at the gold. Isn't that beautiful? Gold, Rhine gold, Rhine gold. He looks at it, and then one of them, the first one, tells, you know, you can take this gold, and if you can fashion a ring out of this gold, you will become the most powerful person, and you can dominate the world. Well, but you have to, there's a catch, you know, in fairy tales there's always a catch. The catch is you have to renounce love. The Rhine maidens are very sure that they can tell this story out loud because they've never known a man to renounce love. Nobody will renounce love. Well, Alberich is humiliated three times by the Rhine maidens, and so he figures, you know what, I'm not going to get love anyway. Let me at least take the gold, make the ring, and then I'll be the most powerful person in the world. And so he does that. And by doing this, this will set the entire story in motion. And it will develop all through, right through to the end of Die Gute Dämmerung, which is next week. Okay? Now, by so doing, he has ruptured the harmony of nature. They were not supposed to do something. They did it. It's the original sin, and it set the whole course. Every mythology has something like this, of, to where there is an action. Because of that action, evil has come into the world, and this is what this is. This is going to set it all up. Now, I will come back to that. That's, of course, the most important. Now, there are two giants on the earth, Fasolt and Fafner. They have been contracted by Wotan, the head god, to build him a castle that, uh, or a fortress that will be worthy of his proud position on the top of a, a mountain, like as in the Greek myth Olympus, now it's called Valhalla, Valhalla or Valhalla. Now, 
Actually, Fricka wanted him to build this castle because she figured, you know what, he never stays home. Let's build a great castle, and he'll be so happy at home that he'll be at home all the time. It doesn't work. And now he's got this castle, and he has to pay Fossil and Fafner for this castle. The giants, they're coming back because it's finished, and he unfortunately promised them that they could marry Freya, who is the sister of Fricka. She is the goddess of love, and she has golden apples. And these golden apples, uh, whoever eats these golden apples every day, never ages. So in Los Angeles, there would be a big, big, big market for these apples. <laughs> now, Freya's got these apples, and she is represents love. So, Wotan, in essence, has bartered away love to have his powerful castle. Well, the giants are there. Fricka is incensed. Why? Because Fricka is the sister of Freya. She says, how could you have given away my sister for that? And they argue. And argue. He said, no, no, I didn't really mean that. I'm going to do something else. Well, Basel and Fafner come back, want Freya, and he says, no. They said, what do you mean? You made an agreement. There's a contract. No, do something else. And then gradually, and for reasons that you will see revealed, uh, it turns out that the giants can be tempted away from Freya by getting all the gold. They have heard about the gold that is now underneath the earth. Albrecht has gotten all the gold, and he's making this ring. They hear about that, and... They say, okay, we'll take Friar, and we'll come back tonight, and if you have the gold, we'll give you Friar back. So there it is, again, power, love, power, love. There are two other, there's a brother and a sister, two more brothers, actually, of uh, Fricke and Freya. Donner, who is a very powerful, he is thunder. Donner in German means thunder. He's the god of thunder. And then there is uh, Fro, who's sort of the god of the sun. They have relatively uh, small functions. Then there is a very important character who will be the stage manager of the entire piece once he arrives. His name is Loger. Loger is not quite a god. He's associated with fire. He is clever. He is tricky. He is brilliant. And Wotan calls on him when he needs him. He has been described as the world's first lawyer. <laughs> Albrecht has a brother, another dwarf. His name is Mima. He is the best goldsmith in the world, and he has fashioned the ring. And he's made a magic article, and this magic article is called the Tarnhelm, helm-like helmet. You put it on your head, and you can change yourself into anything you want. And you will see Albrecht uh, demonstrate this in the, second, uh, in the third scene of the piece. He will turn himself into a mighty dragon, and then he will turn himself into a little frog. More on that later. Okay, Alberich has enslaved his brother. And then very late in the drama, you will meet Erda. Erda is Mother Earth. She sleeps all the time. But when she awakens, she is a seer, and she says truths, and she sees the future. She sees all. She is all cosmic wisdom. And uh, because she's sleeping, she also represents the unconscious. And because she's coming from the earth, under the earth, she incorporates all that is known about nature. Wotan wakes her up from time to time, or sometimes she wakes up of her own accord to tell him something that he should have known all along. Now, she's going to do that near the end of this, near the end of the opera, or the music drama. Erda has a special relationship with Wotan. She has borne him at least nine daughters who are called Valkyries. You're familiar with the ride of the Valkyries. You'll hear it on Sunday. They are all daughters of Wotan and Erda. One of them is Brynhilde, of course, and she's our heroine from the next opera on. She has also borne uh, Wotan three Norns. You'll meet them in De Gürtedemmerung. They are like the spinning sisters from uh, the Greek 
from the Greek myths, they spin people's fates. Now, Wagner unifies this work through a system of motifs. These are little recognizable musical motives that recur. They can be a character, an event, an object, uh, an emotion. They also exist by families, and I will try to explain that as a time. But nature motives have the tendency to be chords expressed horizontally. In other words, he will take a harmony and he will stretch it out. And then there are scale like the, those are not scales of fish, even though this is Rheingold and the Rhine River. They are scales that means adjacent notes. There are several families. I can't possibly do anything but give the most superficial indication of that tonight, but I will be calling your attention to them. On a verbal manner, Wagner uses a poetic technique called Stab Rhymes. That's a staff rhyme. And what is this is alliteration. You will hear that all of the text, instead of making metric poetry in a rhythm that has a beginning, an end, and a shape, he's going to use the first syllable and he's going to repeat. And you'll listen to this constantly. It's the entire, it's the entire ring. Why does he do this? Because it frees him from the necessity of making four square musical phrases because he's no longer interested in the four square musical uh, phrases that he knew from classical music and from the Italian opera. He now wants constant transformation. So he wants to open up the end of the uh, open up the end of the phrase so musically he can go off into any key and, and he's going to revolutionize harmony with his music. He can go off into any key, he can go off anywhere he wants. He doesn't have to stop. These, these music dramas never stop. You know in Italian operas you get a piece, it comes to a big climax, it stops, you applaud, and then we get another piece, and then it comes to stop, and you applaud. Wagner was completely against that, so he found a musical solution, it never stops, a harmonic solution, it always transforms or modulates into another harmony, and he found a poetic one, which is not for the end of the word or the end of the line, give me a rule for the beginning of the line, I can then start and go wherever I want. The opera has begun. We are at the bottom of the Rhine River, which is a metaphor for the base of existence. This is nature. Nature is always pitted against human society, and nature, in Wagner's appreciation, is always right. He who's, who respects the laws of nature, who lives from nature, is basically good. He who abuses nature is basically bad. You will see there many uh, many interpretations of a ring are possible. You can have Marxist uh, interpretations. You can have Freudian, Jungian interpretations. You can now make a very, very good green interpretation because this, in essence, is what is going on. The gold has been taken away from its proper place and put to the put to the use of building power. You are hearing right now a single chord happens to be E-flat major. It is the chord of nature, and it is expressed linearly. From this beginning are born 20, 25 other motives. The genius of this, and I can't show you that all in one day, is that this will be a come, become like a grandfather who will give forth a grandmother, giving forth motives and motives. They are all based on this very a uh, very simple idea. This is also one of the first pieces of minimalism. So those of you who are fans of minimalism, this is something three and a half minutes of this. Now, what it is, you, you just feel the slight undulation at the bottom of the Rhine. And as it picks up uh, character, you will see 
that the waves get bigger. And it all started with this. A little reminder. Listen to the ascending line of the horn. Many motives that ascend are related to nature. And more action. minutes of that and you, it's one of the most amazing things in the world nobody has ever done anything like that until Wagner now when you get to the top who are you gonna find the Rhine Maidens here they are now they're like those beautiful sirens who swim around unsuspecting sailors they're in the Odyssey you know they're always out there the Hexa the Lorelei German romantic literature loves them Somehow or other, it's part of male fantasy that he's going to be out in a forest and there's some beautiful woman out there and she's going to seduce him. And the other half of that fantasy, she's really wicked and evil and she's going to do something bad to him. So the Rhine Maidens are like that. We never really, they're not really witches. They're just, they're just flirtatious. Listen to the horn. A rising chord, just like the nature motive. This is the gold motive. Listen to the strings. The little violin character, that's the reflection of the gold in the water. And the Rhine Maidens will, will describe that. And you'll hear it repeated second time. And that will develop into the praise of the There's an underlining rhythm. Beethoven is a great hero of Wagner, and if you like the Beethoven Seventh Symphony, which he called the apotheosis of the dance, that rhythm obsessively goes through the first movement of the symphony, and it will be here a basic rhythmic motive. Now it's joyous and full and natural because it is in praise of Rheingold. Later on, it will be perverted into another meaning, and we'll, we'll come to that shortly. <laughs> That. Now, in the course of the discussion, the Rhine Maidens will tell them about the ring. The ring has a motive, here it is. You hear it goes from the top to the bottom and back up again. Here it is again. You see it has a circular character. again around and around and around like a ring from that motive will come many many other motives associated with the ring power and the destructive character of power there's our ring motive you hear it and here's Alberich he said I could become the most powerful man if only I renounced love and you, the renunciation theme in the orchestra, in the cellos. 
he takes a look at the, at the gold, you will hear now the gold in a dissonant key. Listen carefully to the horns. Trump. Second. Third time. Ring motive. Slow. So he says, I will forge the avenging ring, or let the waters hear me. Thus do I curse love. So verflucht ich die Liebe. And he grabs the gold. And that's the cataclysm. The drama is ready to go. He's got the gold, he takes it away. The Rhine maidens cry out in desperation. And now we change scene. There are four scenes in Rheingold, and one of the most amazing inventions of Wagner is the music that accompanies the scene change. Right? So he's, he's going to be writing transitions. There is very little in the literature of opera preceding uh, Wagner, and particularly preceding the ring, that uses the transition as a dramatic force. It is cinematic, in essence, and what he is able to do in this one is almost to overlap from one scene to another, something that we take for granted when we go to the movies, he was able to accomplish musically. Here you're hearing the end of the ring motive. You can hear, you can he actually hear the, almost here going up. You're now going from the water to the top of the mountain. You're going all the way up to Valhalla. The ring motive is disappearing and it turns into this. see it has the same circular character but now you sense that there's something noble here and this is Valhalla this is the motive of Valhalla always intoned usually very quietly on the brass instruments and this is Wotan this is Wotan's home it becomes by extension a motive of Wotan as well now why is it so important because he builds with he builds power as well he has not built his power on the ring he has his power by birthright he is simply God, or the head God. He's born into it. It's like those lovely noble families. You just are. Okay? Wotan just is. And even though he has abused nature too to get that power, he has, in some respects, a greater vision for his world than Alberic. But in a way, they've both done the same thing. Now, what do I mean by that? Wotan actually got his power by going to a tree, which is called the world ash tree, and cutting off a branch. With this branch, he built a spear, and on the spear, he carved out all the laws that would govern godly and human society, and then this is my spear, and these are the, the laws. Now, that will have a motive, and we'll come back to that in a moment. This spear will be a, a symbol of his power, but in order to get that spear, he had to cut the ash tree. The ash tree consequently dies because it has been abused. So, in essence, Albrecht and Wotan have both done the same thing. They have both abused nature in order to have power. Wotan was just better at it, and he went to a better source because there was the source of all knowledge and the fountain of knowledge there. Uh, you will also notice that Wotan only has one eye. Uh, 
There are two versions of how he lost his eye, but they seem to be associated with the fact that at least he tells Fricka this. He had to pay for, he had to get Fricka to marry him somehow his eye. He had to give her an eye. I don't know how that, that, that has uh, something to do with it. However, the fact is he actually paid for it by trying to get knowledge, infinite knowledge. And is that not any different from Adam and Eve who went to the tree of knowledge and by trying to know what they should not know, uh, paid a terrible price and made the rest of humanity pay a, a terrible price. So he's got his one eye. He now has his spear and he has the trappings of a noble mind. And so here's our Valhalla theme. Remember this, you will hear it constantly in the next few days. That's the second part of the Valhalla theme. Now here's Fricka. Her complaint to him is, why do you, basically, why do you wander away? Uh, here I've made you this wonderful house. But she's angry at him today because the subject of Freya. Okay, I've told you that already. She's going to fight with him to say, you cannot give away our sister, Freya. This is her motive. Goddess of home and hearth, of marriage. And here it is in the mouth of Wotan. Now, while they discuss Freya, we don't see her. She comes running in because the giants are pursuing her. She knows they're back. She knows they want to take her away. Here's Freya. This is her theme. As you see, it's a rising theme, so it comes out of nature. Listen again to that. Sensuous, beautiful, evocative. You'll hear it a lot. It will have other forms. When she comes running in, pursued by the giants, it will become agitated. Now, this one you will have no trouble figuring out who this is. The giants. Here they are. God of the sun, brilliant, bright, happy, basically not important. Here's his brother, Donner. Thunder. Listen to the banging of his hammer. Now, if you remember nothing else, this next motive. This next motive is the spear. This is Wotan's spear, on which all the contracts and the laws of the universe are carved. Listen to the brass instrument. Now, what, what is different about this from the nature motives? The nature motives go up. This one goes down. The nature motives tend to go in chords, up. This is a scale going down. And you can see I just keep doing this with my hand because it is almost a diagonal picture of this spear. It is this if you saw it not standing straight but standing up on, a, on an angle like this. Listen to it again. One more time. I want to get that in your head. 
Listen carefully, there'll be a test at the end of next week on this, huh? Now, here he is, the spear. The spear is an object, and it is technically, the motive is called the spear. But by association, it is Wotan. So Wotan has two associative motives. One is Valhalla, and one is the spear. That spear will come constantly, and it will gradually also be used in a context where we're understanding Wotan will lose his power in the course, and that's what Goethe-Demmerung is all about. It's the twilight of the gods. So he is going to sow the seeds in Rheingold, and the destruction will come much, uh, much later. But that's his motive. Golden apples. That's Freya. Here it is again. Very, very circular as well. Now, here he comes. Loga. Who is he? He's the lawyer, remember? He is the agent of fire. He's not a god. He's a demigod. Uh, he has no status as a god, but the gods need him. Wotan in particular needs him because every great man needs a lawyer. Whenever he's in a trap, as he is right now, he calls on Logo. Logo comes, and he's made out of fire. He's very hard to grasp. Follow this. That simultaneously describes fire and the character of Logo. You can't quite get him. And here's the second one. Him glittering. And the third part? Almost like a match. You can almost hear it rubbing sticks together, which is, by the way, the way they made fire in those days. Rubbing the sticks, you can hear that at the beginning. You can hear the match, you can hear the ignition, and then you hear the actual fire. You hear the glittering fire at the top there. This will be played later in slow motion in Valkyrie when Brunhilde is put to sleep on the rock and has a magic fire around her. All of them together now. Rubbing the wood together. Almost like a match. And the fire. Now, what will happen is basically Loga will tell the whole story of the Rhine Maiden, he, and the giants will hear this and they say, Oh, we want that gold. We're taking Freya. Give us the gold tonight, and we'll be back. Now, the problem is set. This is the expository opera. This is the one that's about power. It's very conversational, and it's all about characters in conflict with each other over power. Now, Wotan decides the following. He heard about this man, this dwarf in the bottom of the earth who wants to be master of the universe. You can do almost anything with a god except to say, I want to be master of the universe. So, he's got his CIA, he's got his FBI. Logos told him everything. They go down, all the way down to Nibelheim, which is where the Nibelungen race lives, under the earth. They're going to go down there, and Wotan wants to see what is going on. Now, the second most magnificent piece of imagination, unbelievable. He's decided to show us the Industrial Revolution by a symphony of anvils. And here's the rhythm. 
You remember that? That was the Rhine maidens praising gold, where it was positive. Now it becomes the symbol of the toiling masses in the Industrial Revolution. Charles Dickens. Uh, this is Marx. And uh, too long to go into now, but Wagner's ideas were, at the time, extremely radical. He was even persona non grata in many, many cities in Germany because of his radical ideas. So here they are. You're going to go now into the bowels of the earth underneath to see slave labor. This is the transition from Valhalla all the way down. You're going to go through the earth into the, into the factory, so to speak. And you're hearing the Nibelung theme behind that. And there's your woe theme. Woe. Woe. And then fear and trembling. And you're going to hear the gold theme. The gold theme. You have all these elements together now. The Nibelungen, the gold, the woe theme, and the anvil, uh, the anvil rhythm. It's one of the most impressive moments in any opera. Now we'll get down there and we'll see Alberic, and he's got a new toy. Listening carefully. Mysterious and quiet. This is the motive of the Tarnhelm. What is the Tarnhelm? It is a magic helmet. If you put it on your head, you can change form. And Alberic, this gives Alberic the, the power of the world. His brother Mime has been enslaved as well. Mima is the best smith in the world. You're going to see him again in Siegfried. He has made the Tarnhelm. He has just finished it. Albert grabs it from him, and he loves it because he can do anything. He can disappear. He can make himself big. He's going to make himself into a dragon later. He's going to turn himself into a frog, which is going to be his undoing. The Tarnhelm has magic qualities. Listen to the mysterious character of this it's Alberic, and you hear the Tarnhelm in the background. And that's basically, basically this is Hocus Pocus. If I say the right words, I can turn myself into anything, and I can disappear. Now, Mima has a, has a motive. It is taken. Here it is. It outlines the ring motive. That was the one that went. He's a complainer. And now the hoard of gold is to be heard underneath the Nibelungen. Now, Wotan and Loga come down and they trick Alberich into, uh, because he's boastful, they trick him. And he says, oh, I can, he's of course arrogant and he loves screaming at Wotan. He makes him feel very important. And he explains to them that he has this magic power to become a dragon. hear this dragon gradually coming to life. He wants to scare Wotan. He wants to scare Loga. And they pretend to be scared. Remember that Loga is infinitely clever. So you can see the, the more on that later. Here is 
This is the motive of world domination, and you will hear the woe motive is in there. Master of the Universe, Alberich. Ring, here it is again. Domination, whoa. It's now developed into domination. Now, he tricks himself. He said, they said, pretend to be scared, a dragon. Oh, we're afraid. But what happens if you want to turn yourself into small and hide? Let's say a frog. Oh, frog, that's easy. Here it is. Like a fly swatter, they get him. They bind him up and they bring him to Valhalla. He's done. Alberich is finished. Now, he'll be around until the end of the ring, but his power is gone. Now they go up, 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 all the way. We'll get a second extraordinary tone poem. They're going to go upwards through the, uh, through the factory. They get up to Valhall. Basically, uh, those, uh, Votan is going to wrest the ring again, away from Alberich. And when he does, Alberich curses the ring. Careful, listen to this because it is a fundamental motive, and it will. It's a rising mo mo motive. You hear it going up, almost like a, a clenched fist. All right, that's the first sounding of that motive. It will come back constantly to remind us of the curse of the ring. Here it is in its symphonic form, in the brass. You will hear it over and over again to remind us that the ring is cursed, and it isn't because Albrecht had the power to curse it. He has only the ability to identify the curse. In other words, power brings a curse with it. Now there's a bitter theme, brooding and bitter. Albrecht. This is the hate of the Nibelung, frustration. We'll come back. Now we have a quick motive. The giants have come back. They brought Freya back. Uh, Fafner, the hard-hearted one, convinces Fazold that we, they should cover up Freya's body with gold. And when, he, when Fazold cannot see her anymore, then they will take the gold with them. Now, there's something very important about that. That is to say, when you have so inundated yourself with power and money and gold, you will probably hide love. In other words, it's a type of inebriation with power that eventually Fry will disappear. Of course, Fazal wants her. He's not fooled by this. And he finally says, look, there's, I can still see her. And then they are forced to put on the Tarnhelm. On the, and he says, no, I see one little tiny corner. And then they say, put the ring on your finger, Wotan. And Wotan doesn't want to do that because he will be giving up his power. But as he's discussing this, Erda comes up out of the earth. Mother Earth wakes up to warn him. She says, be careful, Wotan. He who keeps that ring will destroy himself. And he respects Erda so much. After all, he's the mother of some of his children, many of his children. And she has eternal wisdom. He believes it, and he puts the ring. And so the giants are, well, Fafner is happy. Fazolt and Fafner fight. Fafner kills Fazolt. This is Cain and Abel. He wants it all for himself, and he takes all the gold for himself. He's going to go off, change himself into a dragon, and sleep for 40 years. You'll meet him again in the forest in Siegfried. Here's Erda. Here she, here she predicts the twilight of the gods. Descending theme, it goes down.
Here's Donner. Here's his horn call. Another nature theme. It's built on harmony. For the moment, Voltan's going to put all of his uh, anxieties away. He is going to walk up on a rainbow to Valhalla, and all the gods in full splendor are going to be walking up there. And here's our rainbow. It's starting. Now, on the way up there, he's still thinking, how am I going to get that ring back? I know. I'm going to co conceive a new race of heroes, a young man of his own free will, and I'm going to leave a sword for him somewhere, and he's going to get that sword, and he's going to go and get the ring for me. And here is the most important motive now. On the trumpet, the sword. And this will come back constantly. Here it is. There it is. And then, of course, we're going to be hearing Valhalla. There's one, one little element to tie up. The Rhine Maidens cry from below. I said, we want our gold back. Want our gold. And Wotan said, who are that? And Loga says, don't worry about them. And Loga dismisses them. They walk in full glory up unto now, Rheingold ends in splendor. Siegfried will end in splendor, the splendor of eternal love or the happily ever after. There's our ring. There's our uh, sword motive as they walk towards splendor. You would think that would be the end of the whole story. The gods have got what they want. They've got Valhalla. They're up there. The self-aggrandizement. They will be powerful forever. You're going to feel powerful. You're going to identify with them. You're going to feel like a million dollars. You're walking up to Valhalla, and it should have all been great, right? But no, because the seeds have been sown for catastrophe, just as we sow seeds for our own catastrophes every day, and human beings from the beginning have sown the seeds of their own destruction in every civilization. Not all is gold that glitters. It glitters as we get up there, but a lot's going to happen in the next three music dramas. It's going to show you how, in the end, the gods are going to come to the twilight of the gods because, well, that good old thing, it's in every Greek drama, hubris and arrogance. But forget about that now. Enjoy this magnificent ending. Thank you so much. Enjoy yourself. This podcast was co-produced by Rebecca Stewart. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera.